Postal Publishing, the Going Postal Cast, and Christopher Chapman present Incarceration, the serialized weekly podcast performed by the author, Christopher Chapman. For more information, visit www.goingpostalpublishing.com or email him at goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. This podcast is not suitable for children. It has violence, gore, and lots and lots of naughty words. If you can't handle that, go somewhere else. And now, on with the story, or whatever other crap I decide to come up with. Chapter 21 Jason Rangel now knew what it was like to be in hell. Everything that led up to this point had been merely child's play. The Marinette County Jail was worse than anything he could have ever anticipated. The only thing that could be worse was whether or not prison was going to live up to its reputation. The guards weren't very good to him. He was one of two notorious murderers to be locked up in this jail in the past three years. They'd already dealt with Dale Gustafson, the man that had flipped out and shot three kids. After that, they weren't putting up with anybody's shit anymore. Mealtime was the worst. They allowed each of the inmates to go down to a small cafeteria to eat. Every meal seemed to bring some new form of torture. First of all, the food was terrible. The meals were overcooked, undercooked, or just not cooked. To make matters worse, he still hadn't had a meal in which there wasn't some form of extra topping on his food. He'd found spit, band-aids, fingernails and toenails, hair, and the all-important tooth. He still hadn't figured out who bothered to put a tooth in the miserable excuse the cooks called mashed potatoes. Even when there wasn't food in front of him, the abuse continued. It had been less than two weeks and he'd already been in five fights. He was only 17 years old, being tried as an adult. He was in jail with men that were in their 20s and 30s, who worked out nonstop because that was the only thing that they could do in jail. These men were exceptionally aggressive, beating on him constantly. They'd fight him with a purpose, but they'd also fight him for no reason at all. It didn't really matter. He'd fight them one-on-one, but mostly he was outnumbered. He'd fought as many as four at one time, his anger being the only thing that kept him alive. Anger, and the guard that finally broke it up when the others were going in for the kill. He knew he should be thankful that he was still alive, but he wondered why he still wanted to be alive. His parents were dead and he was being tried for their murders. If he weren't such a chicken shit, he would string himself up with his bedsheet. The problem was that he really was a chicken shit. He didn't want to die. He still held on to the small hope that this would all work itself out in the end. He still believed that the killer, that monster, would slip up somewhere and be taken into custody. He held on to that hope the way a five-year-old would hang on to their favorite stuffed bear. Despite his dimming hopes, he was still afraid of many things. The guards had nicknamed him the Shrieker. It seemed that every time it got dark in his room, his fear would take over. His pulse would quicken and his hands would shake. He would see the darkness as it closed in around him, squeezing him in a death grip. His chest tightened and every breath felt as if somebody was standing on his chest. Then, as if it couldn't get any worse, he would lose control of his whole body and scream out for help. His mind often reverted back to childhood when he would lie in his bed, his eyes focused on the closet door in his bedroom. During his earliest memories, he'd feared that something was hiding behind that door, waiting for him to fall asleep so it could slither out of the closet and eat him alive. He'd never screamed until one night when he was six years old. 
He was lying in bed, staring at the closet doors he'd done hundreds of times before. His eyes were becoming heavy as sleep approached. He fought the sleep. He couldn't allow himself to fall asleep. Yet, as it had happened many times before, he fell asleep. On this particular night, something happened. He stirred, opening his eyes to the dark room. He couldn't figure out what had woken him. Was it mom or dad? No. A squeak had startled him, causing his chest to tighten. That sound was so familiar. It was the squeak of his closet door. Fear gripped him tight. Had he been right about the closet all along? He lifted his blankets, covering his entire body with the exception of a one-inch circle so he could look out and see what was happening. He thought that exposing just that small section would make him invisible to whatever was in that closet. In the mind of a six-year-old child, that logic seemed as real as the existence of Santa Claus. The squeak continued as the door swung outward, exposing the deep darkness of the closet within. He stared into the closet, expecting to see something emerging from the darkness. Then, as he'd expected, a form materialized before his eyes. There really was something in his closet. He screamed. He screamed so loud that his parents were in his room in less than ten seconds. The light came on, and two sets of arms wrapped themselves around him. Even with them there, he screamed. He heard his mother and father tell him over and over again that it was going to be all right, but he couldn't stop. Time passed. How much he couldn't be sure, but he'd stopped screaming. His mother and father were still surrounding him, their arms wrapped tightly around him. What's wrong? his mother asked. She had a deep look of concern on her face. Did you have a bad dream? his father added. Jason tried to speak, but found that he was unable. His voice wouldn't respond. Instead, he pointed towards the closet, which now sat wide open. His father looked to where he was pointing, comprehension developing on his face. He stood, releasing his hold of Jason, and walked to the closet. He looked inside, then grabbed hold of the door. He pushed it closed nearly all the way, then released. The door slowly opened again, giving that familiar squeak. Looks like your closet opened on its own, he said. One of us must have forgot to latch it. You poor boy, his mother said, running her fingers through his hair. Is that what scared you? Again, there were no words, just a nod. His father closed the door. It latched with an audible click. There, that'll take care of you for tonight, his father said, coming back towards him. He dropped down to one knee and looked Jason in the eye. I promise I'll get that joint oil tomorrow and see if there's anything I can do about it swinging on its own. Will that be okay? No, it's not, he wanted to yell. But even in his six-year-old mind, he knew when to leave something alone. He nodded, bringing a smile to his father's face. A smile soon spread on his mother as well. Good night, Jason, his father said, walking out of the room. Good night, my little boy, his mother said, giving him a kiss on the forehead. She stood and walked out, flipping the switch on her way. He was alone in the dark once again. He stared at the closet door, waiting for it to open once more. He slid back under the covers, taking up the position he'd been in when his parents entered the room. All that was exposed of him was that single inch, which was now for breathing instead of looking. He fell asleep a few minutes later. The door stayed closed. Jason came out of his thoughts, 
finding that he'd been crying. He missed his parents more than anything. He'd gladly do the time without complaint if there were any hope of bringing them back. He knew, however, that there was no chance of that. They were dead and were never coming back. He had to live with that, as well as the fact that he would likely be staying behind bars for the remainder of his life. The door to Jason's cell opened. Both he and his new roommate looked at the door. An officer entered, looking at Jason and not the roommate. You have visitors, he said, motioning for Jason to follow. Five minutes later, Jason was in a tiny room consisting of one chair. There was one light overhead and a piece of plexiglass that separated him from whoever was coming to see him. The door behind him had been locked, preventing him from leaving. A phone to the right was the only form of communication to whoever would appear across from him. Who was coming to see him? That seemed to be the biggest question. He didn't think that anybody would want to see him. Most everybody he knew thought that he was guilty of killing his parents, as well as the Normans. He was surprised when he saw David Grimes walk into view. His surprise rose to a new level when he saw Allison Rouse right behind him. She sat down in the chair on the other side of the glass as Dave stood directly behind her. Both carried expressions of pity. He could tell that they didn't want to see him this way. Well, I don't exactly want to be this way, he thought. Dave took the phone, placing it to his ear. Jason did the same. What's up? Dave asked in his familiar tone. Not too much, Jason answered, not knowing how he was supposed to answer. He'd never been in this position before, so he decided to wing it. Been catching up on some paperwork. Serious? Of course not, Jason said, half snapping. I sit on my bed all day, waiting for my three meals in bedtime. Have you been raped in the shower yet? Allison shot Dave a sharp look. As for Jason, all he could do was stare at Dave, not knowing how to answer a question like that. Part of him wanted to lash out in anger, but he knew better. He was fairly certain that they were being recorded, and an officer would be in to grab hold of him and take him back to his cell kicking and screaming. He couldn't do that yet. He wanted to speak to Allison first who looked as beautiful as ever. Sorry to hurt your gay feelings, but I haven't been raped yet, Jason said. I tell you what, when I get out of here, we'll get together and have ourselves a little shower scene. I promise I'll remember to drop the soap. Dave's mouth comically dropped open. For the first time that Jason could remember, Dave stood speechless. It wouldn't last long. I know how this must sound, coming from your best friend and all, but I need to know if you did it. Allison looked at him with a sharp eye once more. You know that I didn't, Jason said. You'd actually think that I'd do that to my own parents? No, Dave said defensively. He held his hands out, palms towards Jason, as if he was blocking something. None of us know what to think. There are an awful lot of rumors flying around about what happened that night. They're saying that you saw some kind of monster. Is that true? Jason didn't know what to say. In a small town like Niagara, people had a tendency to make up stories that were so outlandish that few people could believe it after a while. This wasn't one of those cases. He really had seen a monster, or something like one. He knew, however, that Dave was unlikely to believe him. Yet, wasn't a friend supposed to give you the benefit of the doubt? Yes, no, I don't know, Jason said. His mind saw those eyes and teeth. I'm not sure what it was that I saw. All I know is that it seemed more animal than human. 
He spent the next three minutes describing to Dave what he'd seen that night, right down to the long, sharp nails and teeth. Dave looked horrified, but did not interrupt. Allison sat there quietly the whole while. When the story was finally over, Dave said, I can't believe it. I mean, wow. If what you're saying is true, I just don't know what to say. There was a long pause. His eyes looked upwards, never making eye contact with him. You know that what you're saying is a bunch of bullshit, right? Allison reached up, slamming her fist into Dave's shoulder. It didn't deter Dave from continuing. Come on, do you really expect to go into a courtroom with that as your defense? He asked. I'm Jason Wrangle, and I watch my family die at the hands of the Wolfman. It wasn't Wolfman, Jason interrupted. He wasn't half-wolf, and there wasn't hair growing everywhere. Dave looked at Jason with intensity. He moved forward, putting himself between Allison and the glass. It doesn't fucking matter whether or not this monster had hair or not, because I don't believe a goddamn word of it, Dave said in a flat, angry voice. I'm your best friend. Hell, right now, I'm probably your only friend. Despite that, I'm having a very difficult time believing what you're saying. Once upon a time, right up until the day your parents died, I would have beat the shit out of anybody that said you had the capability of hurting anybody. But after what I saw that day, what I saw you do to Nathan, I just don't know anymore. I saw the look on your face, the gleam in your eyes. You had murder in your eyes. You might have killed him if Mr. Craze hadn't stepped in when he did. I would have never. Would you? Can you be so certain? I saw what I saw, and I have to say that I didn't know the Jason Wrangle that beat the shit out of Nathan Paulson. A pause. I can't do this. I thought I could. I'm sorry. Dave turned and handed the phone to Allison. Through the receiver, Jason could still hear Dave talking. He spoke to Allison as he walked away. I have to go, he said. I'll be in the car. You talk to him all you want. The guy is crazy. He really does think that a monster killed his folks. With that, Dave Grimes was gone. Allison quickly put the phone to her ear and spoke. She looked upset as if something Dave did was making matters worse. Is that true? Allison asked. You think that a monster really killed your parents? Here we go again, he thought. I don't know if it was a monster or not, Jason said. It was a really strange-looking man. At least, it must have been a man. He was like a beast, though. He killed my parents right in front of me. I tried escaping by stabbing him in the chest with scissors and then pushed him down the stairs. I heard his back break. Yet, I watched him get up. I ran until I came to the cop. While he was inside the house, checking out the scene, the killer, the fucking beast, scratched at the window, trying to get in. I was scared as hell. Allison stared at him for a long time, maybe as long as two minutes. Her eyes seemed confused, as if she didn't know how to answer him. Her mouth opened on several occasions, only to close again right away. Finally, her face softened, becoming an expression of compassion instead. You're telling the truth, aren't you? She asked in a soft voice. I don't think that you killed your parents. I can tell. You have kind eyes. If you had killed them, your eyes would show it. Dave saw what he wanted to see, but I was also there that day. I saw what you did to Nathan, only after what he did to me. Oh, yeah? Why? She asked with a gentle smile. Why would you try to protect me? He felt his cheeks flush. He was certain that he was blushing. He wondered how he could answer. 
He looked around the small room, knowing how unlikely it would be that he ever got out. He knew that he could say whatever he wanted, and there was nothing she could do to stop him. He could tell her the truth, and the worst that could happen was she ignored him, dropped the phone, and walked away. How was that any worse than what was already happening? It wasn't. He built up his courage and spoke, choosing to go for broke. I did it because I've had a crush on you for a very long time, he said. She opened her mouth almost instantly to say something, but he spoke again before she had the chance. You're the most amazing person I've ever met. You're beautiful, smart, and everything else that any guy could ever want. I wanted you. I protected you from Nathan because he had no right hitting a woman. Nor could I allow him to do that to a girl that I like as much as you. Her mouth stayed open, but she didn't speak. When her mouth closed, she did something that he never would have expected. She smiled. He was so caught off guard that he thought he might have been dreaming the whole thing. Those are some of the sweetest things I've ever heard anybody say about me, she choked out, yet her smile never faded. I can tell that you're very sincere. Sure, I've heard other boys talk like that about me before, but they usually sound like some pop song and are only doing it to get in my pants. Look, you're saying it while you're in jail. You could be going to prison, yet you're saying these things. My God, it's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. You're over-exaggerating, Jason said. Thanks, though. You're making me feel better, even if it's only for a few seconds. Placing her hand against the glass between them, she exclaimed, No, I mean it every bit as much as you did. You're in no position to get into my pants. Yet you said those things. You beat up Nathan Paulson because he hit me. Most of my ex-boyfriends would have watched, and then went for a teacher. You got involved because of your sincere feelings. You can't hide or fake something like that. I don't see how this helps anything, Jason said. I'm probably going to prison for the rest of my life. I'll do whatever I can, she said. I'll testify if I have to. Why? I tell you what. I want you to take me out on one date she said. I'll wait a little while if I have to, and I'll help you out if needed. What do you say? Jason knew exactly what to say. There was little doubt that this was one bright spot in an otherwise bleak situation. It was as if there really was hope. Will you go out on a date with me after I get out? He asked, knowing that it was the polite thing to do. My, I thought you'd never ask, she said, then started laughing. The door behind Jason swung open. A guard peeked his head in. Time's up, the guard said. Jason turned back to Allison and said, I have to go. She nodded, smiling. I know. We'll be in touch. When we have that date, I expect something fancy. You got it, Jason said as a hand grabbed him firmly by the shoulder. He was pulled out of the room and away from Allison with a large smile on his face. That's what Allison Rouse was able to do for a guy like him. She was able to bring light into an otherwise dark day. She gave him something to look forward to, something that would help him get through the days that were coming. Days that would be pure hell. Chapter 22 The three months following the murders of the Normans, as well as Mary and Gary Rangel, were some of the busiest in Chief of Police Randy Thompson's life. Niagara was in a state of shock now that one of its own was facing trial for five counts of murder. 
It was as if the town had a hard time accepting the fact that someone from a small town could be twisted enough to kill his own parents. They were slowly coming to grips with it. Secretly, Randy kept his eyes and ears out for any sign of the man that had assisted Jason in the murders. There hadn't been any sign since the two officers disappeared from the morgue. Their bodies, as well as the body of Jim Hendricks, still hadn't been discovered despite extensive searches throughout the area and surrounding towns. The accomplice simply vanished and took everything with him. For all he knew, the accomplice could be lying in a ditch somewhere, dying or already dead. It didn't matter to him as long as he wasn't terrorizing his town and getting in the way of the trial. The trial was already upon them. The jury had already been selected, and things were ready to get rolling. Randy knew that one of the great things about court-appointed lawyers was that they didn't always try too hard to postpone the trial. The county had wanted this trial to happen as quickly as possible, and it appeared that they were going to get their wish. Unless something happened in the next 12 hours, something completely extraordinary, the trial would go on as planned. He laid on his sofa, staring at the television. He knew he should head up to bed, but knew that he wouldn't be able to sleep. There was so much on his mind that he couldn't even see what Tim Allen was doing in the new episode of Home Improvement. Samantha had recorded it for him. She was so good to him. Normally he was unable to take his eyes away from the screen. Now he couldn't tell what the last joke meant. His unrest was due to the fact that things hadn't all gone according to plan. The scissors, the goddamn scissors, were supposed to match the murders. Both victims' blood was all over the scissors, but that wasn't enough for Randy. The icing on the cake should have been the forensic expert coming to him and saying that the weapon had definitely been used to commit the murders. That hadn't happened. What had happened was Ramon Sag, the head of the forensics lab in Green Bay, contacted him with startling news. The cuts don't match the scissors, Ramon had said just a week ago. First of all, the scissors that you provided are nowhere near sharp enough to cut through skin like that. Nor would a killer have had the time to do a job like this. These cuts were quick, slicing through the skin in a matter of seconds. Are you sure? Randy asked, hoping against hope that there may have been some doubt there. I'm sure, Ramon responded. I only wish I knew what the murder weapon was. If I didn't know any better, I'd have to say that Teeth made these. The problem with that theory is that Teeth would have to be at least three inches long to make incisions like this. There aren't many animals around that could do that, and definitely not any people. Somebody made a weapon that you haven't found yet. He paused. If I were you, I'd be spending all of your time looking for that murder weapon so that an innocent man doesn't wind up in prison. Randy was shocked by what he heard. The boy was guilty, no matter what any of these so-called experts thought. He had the blood on the scissors and had found Jason with a few quarts of the stuff all over him. He had the boy. Why was this guy trying to ruin such a perfect thing? A light tapping at the front door brought him out of his thoughts. He looked up, staring at the door. He glanced at the clock and saw that it was nearly eleven. Who in the hell could be here at this time? He asked no one in particular as he got up and walked to the door. He stopped at the door and looked through the peephole. He saw only darkness. Realizing that he'd forgotten about the outside light, he reached over and flipped the light switch. He looked through the peephole again, but found the results to be no better. Nobody was out there. He unlocked the door and opened it. He stepped outside and looked around, seeing nobody. Hello, he asked, trying to be as quiet as possible. He didn't want to wake his wife up. Is anybody there? He received no answer, 
nor did he see the slightest bit of movement. He continued looking around, feeling as if he were being watched. He couldn't see anything out of the ordinary, so he thought that his mind must have been playing tricks on him. All of the stress of the murders and the upcoming trial had done a number on him. Half of the time he had no idea what was happening around him. He turned to go back inside when his foot brushed against something. He looked down, examining the item that he touched. It was a newspaper. He again looked around, but still saw nobody. He bent down, grabbed the paper, then returned to an upright position without ever taking his eyes off the view in front of him. When somebody knocks on your door just before 11, leaves a newspaper, then disappears into the night from which he came, Randy had every right to be suspicious. Because Randy wasn't wearing his reading glasses, he lifted the newspaper close to his face. He scanned the top of the paper. It was an edition of the Daily Mining Gazette. He glanced further, reading that it had been printed in Houghton, Michigan. He couldn't remember exactly where that was, but knew that it was a few hours north. As odd as a newspaper from Houghton on his doorstep was, the headline just below the newspaper's name grabbed his attention. His heart thumped in terror. Student found near Michigan Tech. He's been in Houghton, Randy thought, looking again out into the darkness. Why does he want me to see this? He wondered if this was some sort of game. Was somebody on to him? Did somebody know that he was trying to keep the accomplice a secret? He suspected that somebody was on to him. That was the only thing that made any sense. He took one last look out into the darkness before sliding back into the house. He closed the door behind him and locked it. He moved to where he'd been sitting just moments before and sat, lifting the newspaper in front of him. It read, The Houghton County Sheriff's Department are stumped after finding a body on College Avenue, just three blocks from Michigan Tech University. Carl Edipa, who was walking his dog shortly before dawn this morning, found the body. He immediately called the Houghton County Sheriff's Department, who were on the scene in minutes. It was unlike anything I've ever seen, said Chief of Police George McLean. The body was found missing all of its blood, with a large amount of its throat missing. It appeared as if it had been cut out with a sharp object. Some have already associated this murder to a series of murders that occurred in Niagara, Wisconsin just a few months back, in which two families were killed in a similar manner. A suspect has been taken into custody. Jason Rangel, the 17-year-old son of one of the deceased families, has been charged with five counts of murder and is currently being held in the Marinette County Jail, where he is awaiting his trial. I don't think that these cases are related in any way, continued Chief McLean. I've already spoken to officers that had worked those crime scenes, and there were many similarities, as well as many differences. He did not go into specifics as to what those were, citing that it was still an ongoing investigation. I believe that we are dealing with a copycat killer who is mimicking the previous murders, McLean added before refusing to answer any further questions. Calls to the Marinette County Sheriff's Department for comment haven't been returned. One officer working on the Niagara Police Force refused to speak, simply saying, no comment. We will continue to update this story as new information is made available, and the name of the victim has been released. If you have any information regarding this case, please call the Houghton County Sheriff's Department or the Houghton Police Department. Randy put down the newspaper, feeling sick to his stomach. This was no copycat killer. He knew it as well as he knew his own name. He didn't need to be a rocket scientist to understand the links between the two cases, especially when it came to how the murders had been committed. While the press had been told that the throats had been cut out, no possible murder weapon had been given. 
nor would they be given any information until after the start of the trial. If someone had copied this murder, it would soon be found out. With no knowledge of the weapon, it would be easy to distinguish differences in the wounds. Why hadn't the Houghton County Sheriff's Department contacted him about the case? He was the man responsible for breaking this case wide open and putting Jason Rangel behind bars. If there was a question concerning this case, they should have contacted him. That still left the question. Who left the newspaper at his front door? He picked at his brain for possibilities, but kept coming up blank. He didn't know of anyone who was crazy enough to put a newspaper anywhere near the chief's front door. Although he had no proof, he truly believed that somebody was trying to tell him something, possibly even that they knew that he was withholding information that could possibly lead to the arrest of the accomplice. He couldn't let this get to him. He was less than 24 hours away from the start of the trial. All he had to do was go through with the plan, and this would go away forever. Even if the scissors hadn't been used to cut out the throats of the victims, it was going to be difficult to prove otherwise with the only known photos of the victims locked up safely. It would take a miracle for the defense attorney to figure it out. The blood being on the scissors was more than enough. It was clear that Jason had used the scissors to kill his parents. Everything else was irrelevant. The accomplice was gone, and it appeared that he wasn't coming back. That was as good as it was going to get for him. He crumpled up the newspaper and put it into the fireplace. He reached into his pocket and produced a pack of matches. He took a match and lit it. The match burned the light between two of his fingers. He moved the match slowly into the fireplace, touching it to the edge of the newspaper. The newspaper charred, then burst into flames. The fire spread, consuming the entire newspaper in less than four seconds. The paper burned hot, turning into blackened ash before his eyes. That's done, he said to himself. He walked towards the steps. He stopped, turned off the living room lights, then went up the stairs. He went to bed that night feeling no remorse for what he was about to do. He went to bed knowing that there was more to this story than he would ever understand. He was doing exactly what he had to for his family, his job, and his city. You've been listening to the Going Postal Cast. For updates about Christopher Chapman, his stories, and future podcast happenings, be sure to go to goingpostalpublishing.com. If you want to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash goingpostalpub, or like him at facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. This podcast is copyright 2012, Going Postal Publishing. <laughs>